A little bit of history, or maybe some background on Proverbs that I want us to look at before we start studying. We have to be careful when we're reading the book of Proverbs not to, to take what they say as either prophecy or a promise. Um, there are some things in the Bible that I believe we can take literally as prophecy, that this will happen. There are other things in Proverbs... Basically, the book of Proverbs is a book of, of wise sayings that are a description of life. They're not a hard and fast predictor of life. And that's important, I believe, when we go to study Proverbs, that we realize that it is just that. It's a wise saying. It is a description of things that happen in life, but it is not prophecy. And I say that because of this. If we read Proverbs 16 and 7, it says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Okay? If we looked at that at prophecy, that means that as long as you're pleasing to the Lord, you'll never have any enemies. I'll give you a great example. Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, I believe was pleasing to his heavenly Father. He still had enemies. So we have to realize that the, the book of Proverbs is not prophecy. It's not a promise that this is what's going to happen. It's a wise saying of this is a pattern of life. Proverbs 22 and 6, and this is one of the verses that we're going to use today, but just to reinforce this whole idea, it says, If you train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, if that were prophecy, that means every parent that ever trained their children in the ways of God, their child could never go wrong. And we know that there are godly parents that have raised their children in the ways of, of the Lord, and they've raised them right, and the children still did not follow the Lord's ways. Why is that? It's because the children still had a choice of their own. And they had a choice to make good or bad choices in the direction they went with their life. A lot of times what happens with parents, and I've seen this many times, parents look back and they say, but I raised my child in the right way. What happened? And they start blaming themselves, saying, well, I must have done something wrong. That's not necessarily the case. We can raise our children up in the ways of the Lord, and they still have a choice whether to live for God or not. Ideally, spiritual instruction, if you read through Proverbs, you see a lot of this. Spiritual instruction comes from our parents. But we have to realize that there are others around us as we're growing up that influence our our decisions and how we grow up other than our parents there are step parents there's grandparents aunts and uncles sunday school teachers friends spouses pastors siblings all kinds of other people all of these people in our lives as we're growing up affect us in how we grow up a parental guidance is probably one of the most important because that's who the child looks up to as they're growing up. 
But there's all of these other people that are involved in children's lives and young people's lives as they grow up that still can help shape the direction that they go. Right, exactly. Now, a lot of you in this room today, your children are already grown, and you can say, well, then why am I here today? Because my kids are grown and I don't have to worry about this. Well, as grandparents, if you're a grandparent, as an aunt or an uncle, um, as an elder in the church, you can have an influence on the children and the young people, the teenagers of the church that you attend. Adults that have never had children. There's been a lot of adults that never had children that have been tremendous influence on the children and young people that they involve themselves in their lives. So this lesson this morning, it may not seem like at first glance that it's just for you, but it is for us this morning because there are so many families today that are not the typical mother, father, and two kids living in a little house with a white picket fence. Families are not really that way. There's what's called today blended families. And a lot of those blended families aren't blended very well. And there needs to be some other influence. And those of us that are supposed to be living for God should be that influence on those young people that we come in contact with. The true test of Christianity isn't what you are in church. The true test of Christianity is what you are in your home and what you are away from church. It isn't how saintly or godly that we act at church. It's how your Christianity works in everyday practical situations. If we're only Christians at church and we're somebody else when we're gone, then we're just a phony. After all, how hard is it to act like a Christian at church? We come in, we praise God, we raise our hands, we sing, we, we do all the things because it's just easy to do. But what the true test of our Christianity is when we walk through those doors back there, and we walk outside, we go to our home, we go to our jobs or whatever we do during the week, and the people that we come in in contact with, that is the sign of true Christianity. The most important people that you will influence are those that you see on a daily basis or on a regular basis. The young people of this church... um, Maybe you only see them on Sunday morning. But you have to realize that for some of these young people, this is their only exposure to what a Christian is. When they leave this place, their parents might not have ever walked through the door of a church. Their parents might not give any kind of an example of what a godly person should be. So what are they going to see? They're going to equate what they see in you and I here as that's what a Christian should be. You say, well, I'm not their parent. True. But if we really have the heart of God 
and we really say that we want to, to do things and reach out, then it is our job to show those around us that we maybe see only on Sunday morning what a true Christian is. Now, our relationship with God most definitely should affect our family. It should affect our children, our wife, our, our parents, whoever that is in our family. Obviously, our walk with God should affect that. I'll give you an example. There was a, a minister. His name was Dr. Parker. He was speaking at a church in Chicago. And after a few nights of, of service, the Lord had just been blessing in a, a mighty way through the Bible studies. They had a time of sharing where people could stand up and, and say what they had gleaned from all the teaching. And a lady stood up and she said, I am so thankful for these lessons and what they've done for me. I am so thankful that God loves me. I'm so thankful for this relationship that I have with God. She started to sit down and Dr. Parker said, just a minute. Does this relationship you have with God make you a better mother? Does it make you a better housewife? Are you sweeter to your husband because of your relationship with Christ? Has this really made you a better wife and housekeeper? And about that time, he felt a tug on his coattail, and the minister behind him said, Press those points, brother. That's my wife. <laughs> you see, we can talk about how good God is and how He's changed our life, but if it doesn't show in our family, that's who we have the most influence over. Henry, Henry Ward Beecher said, There's not much practical Christianity in the man who lives on better terms with angels and seraphs than with his children, servants, and neighbors. Let me read that again. It took me a couple times. There's not much practical Christianity in the man who lives on better terms with angels and seraphs than with his children, servants, and neighbors. If we get along better with the angels and, and that we're so heavenly and we don't even have a decent relationship with our family, there's not much Christianity. There's not much character there. And that will bring us to our lesson text today, Proverbs Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then 6 and 20. Listen, my son, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commandments, and you will live. Now, I'm not sure if that meant if you don't do what I say, I'm going to kill you. But you could interpret it like that. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. And then 6 and 20. My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Wisdom is an acquired trait <clears throat> that's gained through the help of others. I don't believe that we are necessarily born with wisdom. You don't hear a lot of four- and five-year-olds spouting tremendous words of wisdom. Wisdom comes with experience. It also comes with the guidance of other people that are wise. I don't consider myself a wise person, 
But I definitely consider myself a lot wiser than I was about 30 years ago. Maybe 20 years ago. Hopefully. But we have to realize it's something that comes with time. And our children, if we expect them to have wisdom, where are we going to expect them to get it from if it's not from us? Our grandchildren, if we're going to expect them to be wise and, and be wise in the Lord, where are they going to get it if they don't get it from us? Parental instruction is the primary tool that God uses to give wisdom to our children. But in order to benefit from it, the person that hears it has to pay attention. And you look at that first verse in 4 and 1. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. But it doesn't stop there. It says pay attention. Because a lot of times... If you've had children, you know that you can speak to them and there's a difference in them hearing what you say and paying attention to what you say. And if they don't pay attention to what you say, they cannot gain understanding. So there is a certain amount of responsibility on the hearer's part. You could spout the most wise sayings and the, the most wisdom that was ever known on the face of the earth to your children. But if they choose not to hear it, and they choose not to follow it, then it puts them in the category that Proverbs uses a lot as a fool. Not as a person that doesn't have any intellect, but a person that doesn't listen to wise counsel. The kind of instruction that is talked about in Proverbs 4 and 1 is an educational type of instruction. And it also often includes a certain element of chastisement. I think it's one of those situations where there are certain things that we tell our children that aren't just good ideas. There are certain things that we tell our children that we want them to learn, and not only want them to learn, we expect them to learn. And maybe we have to impart that wisdom to them in a little bit more forceful way than we would normally impart just surface-type things. The author of this passage promised that if the person hears and understands, that they receive something in return, and that's understanding. What more from a parent, as a parent, can we expect or, or want in our children than for them to gain understanding? To be able to quote the Bible would be great, but to understand what it says is even greater. The first term in verse 2 comes from a root that means to take. Whether or not learning takes place is, again, goes back to the hearer. You can sit in a classroom, and there are, you look at any classroom in any school, and if you have your 25, 30 kids sitting in the classroom, it's the same teacher saying the same thing to each of those children. 
but not all of them walk out with the same degree of understanding. And it doesn't mean that they're not smart. They could be equally intelligent, but if they choose not to hear what that teacher saying, they will not gain. It's their duty to take what they hear. I give you sound learning, so don't forsake it. The word in this verse here for teaching is literally translated in the Hebrew as Torah. Now, when we hear the word Torah, we think that it generally refers to the the first five books of the, the Old Testament. It can refer to specific regulations in the book of Deuteronomy. We generally look at it as these books of law and things that Moses wrote as God told him to write these things down so that the children of Israel would have these rules. But it also goes, in, in this particular verse, it has a more general meaning of instruction. I give you sound instruction. And I believe that it means that all of the commandments of God are sound instruction. So it's not just the, the first five books of the Old Testament that are sound instruction. It's everything that's contained in here. And if we can impart the wisdom that is in this book to those younger people around us. Now, when I say younger people, if you're 60 or 70, I'm a younger person. That's right. I didn't say I'm a young person. I said I'm a younger person. But we can impart wisdom and correction and instruction to those younger people around us. And I need that. And I'll take that. I've had people come to me in the last, even recent years, and just tell me I was wrong about something. And you know what? Thank you. If I'm wrong, somebody should tell me I'm wrong. Right? Isn't that what these scriptures are saying? We look at it so many times like all these scriptures are pertaining only to little kids that are like under six. But it's not. It's talking about wisdom being imparted from an older person, an older, wiser person, to a younger person that may need that wisdom. And that's why it affects everybody in this room. We can't get off that easily and say, well, I've already raised my kids and, you know, their, their kids are almost grown, so I'm out of this. I don't have to pay attention. That's not what it says. The next verse in our passage, verse 3, it says that he says that his instruction began at an early age. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender. That word tender means young. It's used in several other passages in Proverbs also. And it just means somebody that's a young, untrained person. Now, it goes on to say, an only child. If you look back through history, you will know that Solomon, if he wrote this, was not an only child. He had several other siblings. But in Psalms, this same word and same passage, an only child, 
is actually translated as precious. Not as only child, but rather precious. And so it probably means most loved, which means he was probably his mother's favorite son. Not that that happens. The acquisition of wisdom is more than just an intellectual transference. I believe that wisdom has to go beyond just our knowledge and our mind. I believe that it goes further than that into what we call our heart. Because if it's just surface, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, I can quote my multiplication tables because they're in my head. But they don't mean a whole lot as far as when it comes to, I can't say them with passion. Two times four is eight. There's just nothing passionate in that. So we can have things in our head and not really have it in our heart. But the things that come as as parents and grandparents and, and as elders, those things that come from us to those that are younger than us have to go beyond their head and they have to become a part of our heart. And I believe the only way that that will happen is if those that we're speaking to see that it's in our heart and not just in our head. If we just walk around spouting off wisdom and then we just, we're seen doing just absolutely ridiculously stupid things, most of the people that we speak to aren't going to take that as a wise saying. So what is important to our children and grandchildren and those around us? Many of, if you ask most people in the world today, they say, well, it's the necessities of life, the food and clothing, a place, place of shelter, a place to live. And then other parents would say, well, there's, there's other things that are necessities, the, the finer things in life. I want, I want better for my children than I had. I want those things for my children that my parents couldn't give me. And a lot of parents look at that as a necessity. Maybe it's a good education. There are a lot of people that say, I never got that, that education that I really wanted, so I want to make sure that my kids get that education. And there are a lot of different opinions on what the necessities and what is important for us to give our children and our grandchildren. But what are the real things that matter? The Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, teaches us not to place priority on material things. There's a lot of parents that spend so much time working to give their kids things that they can't give them the one thing that's most important, and that's themselves. Two little boys were talking, and they were discussing their parents, and one little boy said, I'm really worried. He said, my dad slaves away at his job so that I have everything I need, and so I'll be able to go to college someday. My mom works hard, washing and ironing, cleaning up after me, taking care of me when I'm sick, driving me everywhere I want to go. They spend every day of their lives working for me, but I'm worried. And the little boy, other little boy looked at him and said, what are you worried about? 
He said, I'm afraid someday they're going to try to escape. (laughs) And a lot of kids today have grown up with just that mentality that my parents are here to do nothing else but to give me stuff. You know why? Because that's really all their parents give them. Now, I'm guilty of that to an extent. I will take blame for that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with giving our children things. I don't think there's anything wrong with providing material things for our children. As long as it's balanced with the Word of God. When it goes way one way, then there's something wrong. We have to provide for our children. The Bible speaks of someone that doesn't provide for their family as someone worse than an infidel. So you can go too far one way, or you can go too far the other way. And I believe what the book of Proverbs does is helps us to balance out those things that are really important. So where should the emphasis be? Proverbs 15 and 16. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. If you're not able to give your, your, those who you are responsible for, if you're not able to give them great wealth, it's better to have just a little as long as they have the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not us walking around thinking that at some point God's going to shoot this bolt of lightning out of the sky and strike us dead. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a love and respect that comes when we realize who God really is and what He truly has done for us. That respect that comes with that is what the Bible speaks of when it talks about the fear of the Lord. There's some people that literally walk around with the fear of the Lord thinking that God is this horrible being that's just looking for a reason to smote them dead. That's not God's way. More important than providing riches or providing all those other things that we sometimes get mixed up as what's important with our children is providing our own example of a deep and abiding respect or fear of God. That is the most important thing. So what does the fear of the Lord do? Let's look in Proverbs 1 and 7. Read a couple of scriptures here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 10:27. The fear of the Lord adds length to your life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 16 and 6. Through love and faithfulness is sin atoned for. Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. And again, keep in mind, that fear of the Lord is not walking around waiting for lightning to strike. It's that respect and honor when we understand who God really is. Proverbs 22 and 4. Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life.
Sure. Then with those scriptures we've just read, it would be easy to say, well, then the fear of the Lord is probably the most important necessity that we can give our family. And that's true. Because if you look at what the fear of the Lord brings about, it brings about all the things that we really want our kids to have anyway. Even down to wealth. Another necessity is giving them love. Proverbs 15 and 17. Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred. It was a luxury. It was a big deal to have meat with a meal back then. And it's getting that way today. But the writer was saying it's better to have a simple meal, just the basic necessity meal, and have love in the house than to have all the important trappings of a fine dinner where there's hatred. Providing an environment where love reigns is much more important than providing an environment where material abundance reigns. And we've seen this before so many times. More often trouble... Troubled children come from a home where love is lacking, not where money is lacking. So we can see that the money thing doesn't solve the problems. If you look in the news at so many of the people that we see, mainly because they're famous and have so much money, look at the young people that are constantly in trouble. Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan. Young people. And just constantly, their life is in a turmoil. It's not because they lack money. It's, it's not because their parents haven't provided. It's because they don't have that wisdom of the Word of God somewhere in their heart to help guide them. right where there is peace and tranquility in a family material affluence affluence matters very little now again don't get me wrong i'm not saying that it's wrong to have lots of money i believe there are wealthy people that give their children an awful lot of stuff that still impart the word of god to them and they grow up healthy good adults it's balance. The scripture we read says, basically, what value is there in wealth if there's always fighting over the thing that it provides? Better is a meal of vegetables where there's love than a fattened calf with hatred. A wise parent, grandparent, guardian, whatever your situation may be, realize that spiritual provisions are more important than material ones. When God's wisdom is truly followed, and this is important, when God's wisdom is truly followed, 
it won't be necessary to go without the material things. Well, why do you say that? Proverbs 20 and 7. The righteous man leads a blameless life, and blessed are his children after him. It doesn't say you'll have to be poor, and your children will have to be destitute because you live a godly life. It says that here that your children will be blessed. Matthew 6 and 33. But seek you first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. When we place in our children's heart, and we place in our heart, and, and try to give that example to all of those younger ones around us, that seeking God first, if we do that, all of these other things will come. But what happens is, a lot of times we get it twisted that we go looking for all the other things and we say, when I get all of that, then I'll go and find God. It's not what the Bible says. I believe what these, both of these scriptures are saying. When God is watching out for you and seeing that your needs are adequately met, and He's taking care of that, then what we should do is take care of the things and focus on the things that are the most important. God has promised He'll take care of us. We don't have to focus on getting. If we focus on living a godly life and living for God and following the principles and what the Bible says and, and imparting that to our children and those around us, God will take care of us. I believe that we, if we focus on acquiring wisdom and knowledge and not wealth, God will take care of the other part. Now, I'm not saying that if you study the Bible and memorize the Bible that you'll become a millionaire. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that God will take care of you. It is promised in His Word that He will take care of you if we seek His kingdom first. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Wisdom and knowledge. Let's read that again. Verse 3. By wisdom a house is built. Through understanding, it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. That's right. Exactly. Let's go to Proverbs 10 and 1. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son, grief to his mother. Train, up a, train a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not turn from it. Proverbs speaks an awful lot about children respecting their parents. Uh, Proverbs 20 and 20 says it pretty bluntly. 
If a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Now, I'm guessing that's not literally his lamp. During the time of Moses, the law said that disrespect to their parents, if children were disrespectful to their parents, they were to be taken out and stoned. Proverbs 30 and 17, and it, it goes even further than that. It says that those kids that were disrespectful and you took them out and got stoned, that the birds should pluck their eyes out of their head. It's putting a lot of emphasis on respect. And if that was still held to today, there would be an awful lot of dead young people with their eyes pecked out. Because there is an awful lot of disrespect among younger generations. Apparently, however, that ended way back in the Old Testament. Even with King David, we see the disrespect of his children and he didn't take them out and have them stoned. So that practice kind of fell by the wayside a long time ago. So any young people that are listening to this on line or DVD, you don't have to worry about your parents having you stoned. did not know that. The next passage of Scripture we're going to read. That's what it says. The next passage of Scripture we're going to read. In fact, the first nine verses of chapter 31, the book of Proverbs, are attributed to a king named Lemuel. And if you've read the background on this and read behind the Scriptures we're going to read today, you might question, well, who is Lemuel? Some scholars believe that these passages of scriptures were written by King Lemuel or his mother, especially the part about being an, an excellent mother. The name Lemuel, however, does not appear anywhere else in the Bible. It does not appear in the biblical list of kings of Judah or Israel. It is not mentioned anywhere else. So who was Lemuel? A lot of scholars believe that this was symbolic, a symbolic name referring to Solomon. The word Lemuel is made up of a combination of Hebrew terms that mean dedicated to God. So if you go all the way back to Proverbs 31 and 1 where it says, The sayings of King Lemuel, an oracle his mother taught him, most likely that would be the sayings of King Solomon an oracle his mother taught him. According to one of the rabbinical traditions of the Jewish faith, Solomon's mother, who was Bathsheba, came to him the day after his wedding and taught him these sayings that are recorded in this chapter. So it makes sense that you see that it says in the, in the introduction, an oracle his mother taught him. This passages of these scriptures are taught to a lot of Jewish children that have been memorized by a lot of Jewish children over the years. And we'll see a little bit of why that is so important as we go back to Proverbs 31, 26 through 28. Speaking of a godly mother, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. 
She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. According to Solomon, imparting wisdom is the responsibility of both parents. Not just the father, not just the mother, because he mentions both parents in all these passages that we've read. And I believe that's because both parents are affected by the outcome of the child. If you go all the way back to the, one of the first scriptures, it says, A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. So it's important that both parents share in the responsibility of imparting this wisdom and knowledge and understanding to the children. Because if they don't get it, both the mother and the father are going to suffer. The training of a child is mentioned in, in a scripture that we've already read. And the word training here is also interpreted in another place in the Bible as it's the same word that was used when the description of the dedication of the temple. When Solomon built the temple, they had this big dedication. We had all these people come and sing and all this stuff going on. It's the same word that's used here as was used there. And it basically means dedicating our children to God. Now, there's a scripture, and we've read this scripture a couple times this morning. Chapter 22 and 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. The Hebrew text of this, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I did look into this. The Hebrew text of this literally says that a child should be trained according to his way. Stay with me here just a minute. And I believe this refers to the child's manner. I believe that it means training a child should be suited to the age and the temperament of the one that receives it. The focus then is on the nature of the child. Now, stay with me here. This is, I was just, when I've read this scripture so many times, but I never received it this way. If we say, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he won't depart from it, if we take that literally, we are allowing an interpretation of environmental predestination. If we really believe that literally, train up a child in the way he should go and he'll always live for God. Then that would be a fact that we could predestine our children by just training them the right way. And we know that that doesn't always happen. If the child isn't a faithful Christian, it isn't always the parent's fault. And there are a lot of parents that have, in their older age, have just really punished themselves mentally because their children didn't turn out to be what they expected. And they blamed it on themselves. And I would say to any parents that are here today or that are listening to this by other, some, uh, some other means, if you raised your children with godly principles, and you imparted to them the wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the Word of God, and they chose not to accept it, that is not your fault. 
if you gave them the godly example and you did everything. Exactly. There's an example sitting right there. That's the way you lived. Right. Let me give you another way of looking at this verse, and just stay with me here for just a second. Literally, this verse can be trans- translated, train up a child according to his way. Now, follow me just for a minute. Don't take me outside and stone me. I believe what that really means is to train a child according to his or her inclinations. For example, you don't try to force a child who is mechanically inclined to become a doctor or a lawyer. Rather, bring the child up according to his or her aptitude, and if you do that, they will most likely continue in that direction. So if we say, bring up a child in the way he should go, and we say we've raised them in the way that they are inclined, most likely they'll stay with it. If you have a kid that from the time he was three, all he wanted to do was do building blocks, and then he built stuff in the garage, and you know he could go out in the garage and build a rocket that could go to the moon, and yet we don't want him to be an engineer. We want him to be a lawyer. He might become a lawyer, but he will be the most unfulfilled lawyer that ever lived. Sure. Exactly. It doesn't always happen that way, but... A lot of times it does. But I still believe that into every child is born inclinations. If you take an apple seed and you look at it under a microscope and you take it apart, there are no directions in there for that seed that when you put it in the ground and it grows to produce apples. But there is no chance, and I I can say this with authority, I believe, there is no chance that you put that seed in the ground and it grows tomatoes. That seed has an inclination that is God-given, and that's what it is supposed to be. As parents, I believe that we need to be wise enough to look at our children and see what their inclinations are and help them to go in that direction that they're inclined to. There was a famous composer named Haydn, and he was one of, I believe, six children. His parents wanted him to be an attorney. They, they insisted that he become a lawyer. He went along with it through the first year of college, And he finally said, look, this is not what I am. This is not what I want to be. I'm a musician. I want to be a musician. And Joseph Haydn became 
the father of the string quartet. He wrote symphonies. He wrote some of the most amazing things we've ever seen. And if his parents would have insisted that he become an attorney, you would have never heard of him. And he would have been very unfulfilled. And you would have never sung the song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, because that is something that he wrote. Now, what was more important? His parents' wishes for him to become a lawyer or what his inclination was in the direction that he felt like that was in his heart? I have a very good friend named Lanny Wolf, and he just wrote me a letter this, this week and, and said this in the letter. He spent his first six years of college studying other things. Started off as an architect, went to education, all this other stuff. And it took him years and years to realize that his calling was to music. And after all of those years, he went back and studied and got his degrees in music. And because of that, God led him in a different direction. And he was able to influence hundreds, if not thousands, of young people in Christian music today. And because of the man at some point saying, this is really what God's called me to do, we have songs like, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. And so many other songs that we sing and congregations across around the world sing because someone realized that that was their inclination. And I believe that this Scripture is really, really telling us And if those of you that your children are grown and you have grandchildren, please have this conversation with your children about their children. See what their inclination is. See what they're, they're wanting to do. And encourage them to go in that direction. Because if you do, most likely they won't be one of those people that changes careers every six months. Because they're doing what they really want to do. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. That's where my son's headed. This verse, and I'm going to cut this a little bit short here. This verse, like so many others in Proverbs, is most likely giving us practical advice in raising our children, and maybe even without any spiritual implications, maybe just practical child-rearing advice. But I will say this, trying to force a child to go against their aptitude may encourage that child to rebel in all areas of parental influence, including the spiritual ones. Because at some point they get in their mind, well, if I'm not going to listen to them about this, then I'm not going to listen to them about anything. And once that rebellion's created, it's hard to bring under control. The passages that we've read today conclude with a portrait of a godly wife and a godly mother. And it implies that her 
conversations reflect God's truth. It says that she's a capable manager who watches over the affairs of the family in 31 and 27. That same term, when it talks about this mother that watches over the affairs of her family, is the same word that's used in Proverbs 15 and 3. And look how it's translated here in Proverbs 15 and 3. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. This is the same word that Solomon was using as a mother that watches over her family. And sometimes as little kids, we believe that the eyes of our mother was everywhere. In the Hebrew text, there's two different kinds of, of blessing. The first one's offered by the children. is really a, an expression of admiration. And then the second one that's mentioned is offered by the husband, and it's an expression of gratitude and praise. That's what it says. We as husbands, we need to respect our wives, and we need to show them our gratitude. We need to praise them for the things that they do, all the things they do. Amen. I'm not going there. See, that's wisdom. That's right. Ultimately, the picture of a happy family life is portrayed in Proverbs as one that where the parents faithfully teach their children. They teach them the the ways of the Lord. They provide for the children a loving, stable home. And then the children grow and develop in the ways of the Lord. That's the ideal family in Proverbs. Sometimes it doesn't work out just like that. Sometimes there's some little glitches in there. But I will assure you of this. The promises of God are still the same. If we have made choices that have changed the direction of some of those things, that was our choice. But I will assure you of this, that God still wants His best for you. He wants His best for your children. He wants His best for your grandchildren. He wants His best for all those that you come in contact with that you have influence over. But it's up to us as believers to take what we know and the principles we know in the Word of God and the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding that we have and impart that to those around us. God bless you.